Listening to podcasts is great, but at some point later tonight, you should really watch something. Check out Vox's new Netflix show. It is called Explained. Every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week's episode is all about cricket. I watched it last night myself. It's fascinating. Cricket, if you know anything about it, you probably know that you do not understand it at all. This episode, it really helps you get it. They feature Stephen Fry uh, geeking out about his favorite sport. It explores the question of, like, how did this, like, weird, incredibly confusing, like, English gentleman's game become this incredibly popular phenomenon with a billion fans in South Asia, explains the surprising history of the sport, how it got to be so complicated, how it has sort of evolved, and it shows how beloved this sport is, right? In America, cricket is like kind of a joke, like, haha, these weirdos with bats, but like one in seven people on earth watched a single cricket game between India and Pakistan. It's a huge phenomenon in major parts of the world, and the show also just like, it breaks down the laws of cricket. They've got laws and not rules, so you can actually understand it and like what's a test match, like what's going on, who these players are, where it all comes from. So check it all out on Netflix or go straight to netflix.com slash explained. All right. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's Before get into we denaturalize? All right. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Iglesias here with Dara Lind, and we are also joined today by Herman Lopez. It's been a busy news week, uh, mostly even more Russia stuff, but we talked about that on Tuesday. I think it continues to be weird, continues to be a bit of an unsolved crime. And that is what we wanted to talk about today, a, a little bit off the news. A few weeks ago, you know, we were talking about immigration, and I think I kind of vaguely mentioned, I was like, maybe we should have zero tolerance for murders. And Dara mentioned to me, we actually have like quite a lot of tolerance for murder in the United States. An interesting fact is that even though I think you would say there is a pretty broad, robust social consensus that killing other people is wrong. And that- and in fact, a robust legal consensus, like murder <laughs> is, is pretty, you know, unequivocally wrong in the U.S. code or, yes. or in state codes. And it's, and, yeah. it's definitely illegal. The crime is, is punished quite severely if you are caught. But the rate at which people get caught is lower than you might think, especially because on television, there's a lot of shows about cops, and they often start with the discovery of a dead body or otherwise the investigation of a murder. And they almost always solve the case. And it always seems like a big deal. They work it hard. They take it to the the CSI lab or whatever. But in reality, it's about what, 60-something percent? Yes. Yeah. That's right. Of cases get solved, which is most of them. I guess, but fewer than you would think. And and a really interesting fact that that I learned researching this is that people know there's a lot less crime in the United States than there used to be. Um, Since the early 1990s, the the murder rate in the country has fallen about in half, a little bit more than in half. So that's that's a lot, right? I mean, that's a a significant reduction in murders, a major social achievement, uh, one of the really positive trends in American life over the past generation. And so you might think that with the 
quantity of murders falling so rapidly that the quantity of unsolved murders would also fall. But the clearance rate has actually stayed about flat during this time. And if you go further back in time, just sort of before the big crime increase, right, back in the 1960s, the clearance rate was very, very high. Upwards of 80 percent of murders were being solved back then. Then there was a huge increase in the number of murders. Clearance rates plummeted a lot with the increase in crime. And you could sort of imagine that. But then as crime has begun to fall back to those 1960s type levels, we have not recovered 1960s levels of solving them in any in any kind of real way. Yeah. To underline this, I think that like it's worth being very clear about this because I think the first reaction when people hear that government is incompletely doing the job it sets out to do, the first reaction is always, well, there are resource constraints. There are lots Mm -hmm. of things the government has set out to do. Like the relationship between the two trends that Matt described means that if police had continued solving the exact same number of murders starting in 1995, they would be solving more murders now than actually happen. Like, there, we would be able to be at a 100% clearance rate if this were purely a matter of numerical capacity. But they're not. And so we have this weird residual where even though police used to solve more murders than, like, the number of murders we currently have, police were solving 60% of murders then and 60% of murders now. Right. And I, I think one thing that's important here is— Explaining, I guess, why this number matters so much, and to some extent this is obvious. Like obviously we don't want to have like a bunch of people killing each other and then getting away with it. Getting away with murder is generally understood to be bad. But there's I'm also, against it. <laughs> yeah, I'm also against it. But also in criminal justice, there's just this concept of certainty of punishment. And there has been a lot of research now for hundreds of years showing that the certainty of punishment is – perhaps the most important deterrent to crime, like not severity of punishment, not even swiftness of punishment, but certainty is the most important. Basically, if if I know that when I kill someone, I'm going to get caught and put in prison, I'm going to be much less likely to actually try to kill someone because I don't want to go to prison. And this is kind of obvious, but like when you look at this 60% clearance rate, and, and this clearance rate is even lower in some neighborhoods, uh, which we'll get into later, then like your conceptions of like, hey, can I kill this person and get away with it is going to dramatically change. And that is especially true for people who are likely to kill more than one person over the course of their lives. Like this is less likely to be a problem with people who are just indulging in crimes of passion, but those are the people who are less likely to commit further crimes, right? It's more of a problem for the quote-unquote career criminals who, if you kill one person and do not suffer consequences for it, the odds that you will then be able to kill more people, at least the mental odds that you're calculating, are going to increase substantially. So the places where not only crime is the biggest problem, but where crime is being deliberately pursued for the kind of ends that people think are particularly bad, like organized crime, you know, professional hitman kind of things, are exactly the likely people to notice this difference between what we say is bad and what we actually punish. And I think that at least one prominent theory is that you get stuck in a sort of a downward spiral, right? You have criminals who kill people and they get away with it. Citizens know that the police are not going to apprehend killers, which makes them both more likely to invest in defending themselves by obtaining lethal weapons and potentially killing other people and also less likely to want to cooperate with investigations because you yourself may be 
killed, right? If you have a a high level of confidence in the efficacy of law enforcement, you are more likely to cooperate with investigations, which in turn is going to make the law enforcement more efficacious. And then on the flip side, I mean, when police officers perceive communities to be uncooperative with them, they approach the job in a very different way as a kind of community-level lockdown experience rather than as a a helping kind of experience. And, And this contributes to, I think, a lot of the toxic racial politics of crime and, and crime control that, that we see in, in American cities. But I guess like one question, Herman, because I, I know you've you've written some some articles about this, is like, do we know anything about like what can you do if you're the mayor of a large city, a police commissioner, you know, you say like, okay, I want to like pull out of this spiral. A good thing to say on the campaign trail, I think for almost anyone, is like we're gonna start solving the murders and punishing criminals. That's like kind of, I don't know, like that sounds like a winning line if you have some stuff to, to fill it out. And like, do we do we have ideas? Yeah. So I think there are essentially two major concepts here, and you alluded to both of them. One is resources. Like police need to take these kinds of crimes seriously. They need to like go to these neighborhoods where murder is happening quite often and like actually you know, crack down on these murders and take them seriously. And if you want to read like a great book on this, we've mentioned it on the Weeds before, it's Jill Leovi's Ghetto Side. It's a fantastic book on this. And then the other aspect of this is this concept of community trust. So there's this criminal justice concept called legal cynicism. And essentially what it means is when the community does not trust the government, the police, law enforcement, and so on, they're more likely to take matters into their own hands. And, well, break the law simply because they're just less likely to think, hey, I I had to follow the law since since why would I if I don't trust it? And you see this particularly in a lot of black communities where police are often showing up just to rough up people or harass them or whatever for really petty crimes. But then when you look at the murder clearance rates in these communities, it can be like in the single digits in some cases. It can be like in the 10s or 20s and so on. And if you're like a person of like any race and you're dropped in this community where somebody essentially tells you, look, about half the people in your life are going to be murdered throughout your lifetime in this community and the police is going to do very little about it. I mean, just logically speaking, what are you going to think about that? You're going to think, one, okay, so law enforcement doesn't really matter here. And two, like, maybe I need to take steps to defend myself. And that might involve, in some cases, like joining a game, might involve like taking preemptive action if you think somebody's going to shoot you and that kind of thing. So one of the big things here is that cities and police departments in particular really need to like rebuild trust with communities and signal to them that law enforcement is on their side and is taking these cases seriously. And that goes hand in hand with like more resources, right? If police departments actually dedicate resources to these cases, that is signaling to these communities, hey, we're taking this seriously. But what that ends up doing is it boosts community cooperation with police. So like you need witnesses to solve murder cases in a lot of cases. So like if the community trusts the police, they're going to be more likely to do that. And one of the like common criminal justice like statistics is that you need to get like your witnesses lined up and your evidence lined up very, fairly quickly, like within 24 to 72 hours of a murder. And that obviously helps on that end, getting those witnesses to actually cooperate with you. So these are the like two major things that I think about when I, I'm talking about murder clearance rates. If, like, if cities really want to tackle this issue, they want to dedicate the resources to it, which a lot of them surprisingly do not, particularly in like minority neighborhoods. And two, like 
dedicate resources to rebuilding community trust that has been lost over the decades of like the war on drugs and other kinds of harassment of minority communities? So I think that, you know, Herman is just offered a very clear and concise explanation of like what can be done. It's not just that the reality is messier than that. It's that like we're talking about things that would be great if they could be easily achieved. And not only right. can they not be easily achieved, like community trust is extremely fragile and extremely hard to rebuild. And it's hard to rebuild both because like it's hard to prove a negative, right? Like you have to demonstrate good faith for so long to erase the memory of like one episode of bad faith. But also because frankly – it's really kind of hard to distinguish the perceptions that are rooted in some kind of truth from like perceptions that have just kind of taken on a life of their own. In the immigration context, one of the most interesting recent findings that I've seen is a lot of people, especially a lot of law enforcement executives, were worried under Obama when the federal government kind of pushed local police departments into universally adopting their secure communities program, which involved flagging people who were in jails and whose fingerprints made it clear that they were in the country without authorization to ICE and holding them for ICE to pick them up after they were supposed to be released from jail. A lot of law enforcement executives said, this is bad for us because it's going to reduce community trust in exactly the ways we've just been talking about, right? It's going to make it less likely that people are going to come forward when they they witness crimes because they think that the police are against them instead of being on their side. That logically sounds very solid, but a recent study actually that like treated the rollout of secure communities as kind of a natural experiment found that there was not a meaningful decrease in cooperation. And while that sounds like really good, like, oh, you know, if police departments were already good, then people weren't afraid of them. Actually, the authors interpret that as a bad sign because it indicates that the perception that people had about the police wasn't sensitive to changes in police policy. And that is just as likely on the other side, that a change to seek community trust is not likely to be perceived immediately and is likely to kind of get outrun by the persistent stereotypes rooted in several decades of truth in a lot of communities about whose side the police are really on. Right. I think Boston is a city that is really useful in this space for two reasons. One is a recent study actually looked at what happens if police like essentially restructure themselves, dedicate resources to solving more murders. And this is a study by Anthony Braga, which came out last year. And it found that when Boston did this, it like took the idea that we need to solve more murders seriously. It did see a significant increase in the amount of murders solved. It was like an increase from like the mid-40s to the mid-50s to the 60s. So it's not like they solved their entire murder problem overnight. Right. It's like they were basically regressing to the national mean. Right. And, and like one thing that's important is that during the same time, Sand study, the, the U.S. and the rest of Massachusetts, like they did not see similar changes in their clearance rate. So it seems like Boston really was doing something different here. And that suggests, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. There is like an ability of police departments to do this. And that's actually notable because there have been studies that for decades have suggested that essentially police can't do much about this because it's like based on the randomness of a crime scene. Like say if I go to, if somebody's murdered in a crime scene and the murderer was just happened to like not drop any blood or hair of his on the murder scene, then like the police is just going to lack 
forensic evidence that could be useful for solving the crime. But like this essentially suggests that, no, there's still a lot of room, even if that's true, even if some murders are just going to be difficult to solve no matter what, to actually increase the clearance rate. And I think that's important. And on, on the community trust side, I think one useful example also out of Boston is in the 90s, they had this, what they call a Boston miracle, where they saw like this dramatic decrease, 70 plus percent in the amount of, I think it was gang-related murders in the city. And essentially what they did was they adopted this strategy called focus deterrence where the police comes in and they say to the community, look, we know the people who are committing these crimes, we know the neighborhoods they're in, et cetera, and we will crack down if we need to, to solve these murders. On the other hand, they also said to these same communities, but look, if you want to get out of this life of crime, here are some options, like we'll offer social services. They actually align with like churches. One of the biggest advocates of this push was actually a pastor. And like they work together with the community to essentially signal, hey, we're taking this seriously. And look, it's not just a matter of arresting people for committing murders. We're also offering these resources. And this was a long, years-long process. So it's not, again, that Boston solved this overnight, and it, it took intensive resources, but it does show that you can repair that community trust and bring down some of the community violence you see. But so I, I think this is an important question because I, I spoke to some people I know who work in the field of policing, and they had a kind of contrary take on this, right? Which was they said to me that like, look, this is an embarrassing situation for police officials because we like to have a good public image and we like that in cop shows, these like awesome detectives solve crimes. But Matt, like look back at your chart about how the murder rate has fallen drastically since the early 90s, but the clearance rate has not changed. And they're saying like the reality is we can do things to help reduce the murder rate which is good. It saves people's lives. That is our job. It is a key priority that elected officials give to us. But in terms of the probability of actually solving a murder, right, like once the murder has happened, we're sort of left to rely on happenstance and good luck. Some of these criminals fuck up. Some of them don't. But like it's really hard. And you would not like the results if we eased up on hotspot policing, finding ways to get illicit firearms out of people's hands that, you know, defending essentially, you know, the like now I think unfashionable in progressive media circles, quality of life, crime policing. Like they're saying like this delivered the large reductions in crime that people have wanted and that if we pull people off of security policing and visible presence on the street and put them into trying to act like television detectives who solve really hard crimes, they are not going to solve the crimes. Like, they cannot do it, but they can do the job that we have them doing now. And if we have them stop doing that job and instead, like, go, you know, try to play bones, we're just going to have an explosion of crime and a big waste of money. And like what we need to do is reduce the number of murders, not have a lot of murders and then solve some of them. So I think that there are kind of two things in there. One is a police workforce problem, which like sounds correct from the perspective of someone who's never managed police officers, but which I think also gets into some stuff I hope we get into later about how police officers see their jobs versus how the public sees their jobs. But the other thing I want to point out is that Your interlocutors appear to have smashed up a bunch of different tactics and trends from basically the last three decades in policing. Like, it is not, in fact, the case that 
to engage in good hotspot policing, you have to do broken windows. Hotspot policing was literally developed as an alternative to broken windows so that you could be focusing on the places where violent crime was most likely to happen. Same with focused deterrence. It was an alternative to this idea that you need to be indiscriminate because some of the people engaging in minor crimes, if they're left un caught are going to accelerate into major crimes. But I mean, but these are different ways of deploying people, right? But in the like really biggest choice is like, do we deploy people to preemptive security or do we deploy people to ex post investigations, right? Hotspots, broken windows, even focused deterrence are really all versions of preemptive security policing, where you're saying either we're going to just like run around the city arresting people at random, or we're going to go to this particular place where there's a lot of violent crime and like stand around and be like, hey, man, we're watching you. Or we're going to look at specific groups of people. But like either way, we're not going to like sit in our office and wait for the phone call. Yeah, but like the good news about this is that if you take community trust seriously, and there is like, it's not like we're just making up the idea that a lot of the drop in clearance rate is related to lack of community trust. Like police officials have identified there was like a a 2000 federal government survey of a bunch of criminologists and law enforcement executives in like what goes into clearing a homicide. And one of the most important factors they identified was reliable witness testimony at the crime scene and reliable interviews with relatives and associates in the days afterwards. And, like, that is something that if you try to approach it as a wholly reactive thing, it's not going to work, right? Like, if you've never seen a police officer trying to be on your side before and all of a sudden after somebody you know gets killed, they're like, hey, I just want to talk. I just want to help. That's not what is actually needed to, you know, bring people into the process. So I think this kind of dichotomy between having a presence in neighborhoods and being able to solve murders as they occur is an entirely false one. And I think one of the problems spotted in Ghetto Side, which, you know, apologies to those of you who actually who listened to my recommendation and read this after the last Ask Weeds Anything, because some of this might be redundant to you. But one of the things pointed out there is that the problem between dividing beat cops and homicide detectives is that the beat cops have often done the work of actively destroying community trust. And then the homicide cops are the ones who have to, like, go in and clean up that mess. It seems to me that regardless of the kind of workforce situation, if you had a directive to beat cops that their job in providing community presence was to deter crime through presence, through, like, focused tactics that weren't indiscriminate, and to build a level of community trust that could then be drawn on by investigators, that doesn't seem like something that's so impossible to me. It's just that's when we get into the problem with, is that congruent with how police officers see their jobs? I think one thing I would add to what Dara said is, like, yeah, first of all, I I agree that it it doesn't have to be an either-or. Like she mentioned, these things do work together. If I show, like, focus deterrence, again, going back to that, like, this is an important strategy, not just because it starts targeting specific individuals instead of just randomly targeting everyone in, like, a black neighborhood and suspecting them all of crimes. Like, not only does that signal to these people, like, hey, the police aren't just here to, like, widely harass everyone here. We're here to actually solve crimes. I mean, that actually does prevent crimes better. Like if you go into these places, you find the individuals who are more likely to commit murders and you arrest them, that does prevent murders. And then at the same time, if people don't feel unfairly targeted, then they're going to cooperate with police and that'll improve the homicide clearance rate. So I think these things do work together. The other thing is I would question just how much 
I know that police often say that like some of their tough on crime tactics actually brought down the murder rate and and that's why. But like the research doesn't really bear that out as much as police would like. Like sure, like there's some evidence that like just having more police officers and like putting them out there in the community definitely helps reduce crime. I mean, if you look at New York City, for example, it pulled back stop and frisk over the past few years. And it's still seen continued drops in its murder rates. One of these recent months, I can't remember exactly which one, its murder rate was actually lower than uh, London's, which is really impressive for a U.S. city. So that's that's just one of the things I take issue with. Like, you do need more police officers. I think a lot of liberals might be misleading themselves as they think that just abolishing the police will suddenly solve all crime or harassment or whatever. I think you do need more police officers, but that doesn't mean that you need these police officers harassing people over marijuana. Like, there's a huge gap between I'm going to stop everyone and search them for pot versus, like, hey, that person looks suspicious and seems to be carrying a gun. Maybe I will actually approach them. And, like, like th- there's a huge difference between pot and guns, and that has often gotten lost in a lot of these stop-and-frisk strategies. Let's take a break and then uh, come back and delve into some more of this. I love to learn. I bet you like to learn if you listen to The Weeds. And a great way to learn whenever you want about practically anything is the Great Courses Plus. Uh, You can spend hours watching and listening to fascinating lectures. You learn from award-winning experts about all kinds of topics, politics, world history, psychology, but even like stuff about cooking. It's amazing. We've got thousands of different lectures, always something new to explore. I really recommend checking out Great Courses Plus's lecture on the economics of uncertainty. I think people sort of know that not everything in life is certain, but trying to think about what does that really mean, like risk versus uncertainty, how much of a threat they pose, how you should think about the probability dynamics out there. The human brain is like not naturally well equipped to this, but analytic tools can really help you with it. An award-winning economist, Connell Fullenkamp, offers great tools that we can all use in all aspects of our lives to think critically, weigh risks and benefits. It's better. It's interesting. It's also actually useful. So it's a great way to get started with the Great Courses Plus, or you can enjoy any of their fascinating courses with this wonderful special offer for our listeners. It is a free trial with unlimited access to the whole Great Courses Plus library. But to start your free trial, go to our special URL. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So not to kind of you know, just pick up exactly where we were at the break. But uh, I think the difference between pot and guns really is salient, though, because a lot of the most aggressive tactics that police have engaged in over the last decade or so have been, in theory, directed at guns. Like, stop and frisk was sold as a gun reduction measure. And it didn't turn out that way at all. Like, in D.C., we are seeing a kind of community trust breakdown that is largely related to the work of the gun recovery unit, which is basically doing what are called jump outs to kind of startle people who they think might have illegal guns and disarm them. And that, Can you explain how, what that is? I mean, it, it's pretty much literally like a bunch of people driving around in a, in a car, like jumping out, getting a dude, patting him down, like jumping back in the car. If you've seen The Wire, you should like just think of like how those police officers just like jump people in the streets and just right. put them to the wall and that kind of thing. And it's, so to be right. clear, like D.C. has sort of legalized marijuana. So like the police are definitely not hassling people over marijuana. Right. But they are hassling people. But it's about guns. Right. That is a difficult policy problem, and it's also a difficult political problem because, like, I think that the politics of crime reduction are really, really tangled anyway because 
the vast majority of the American public did not appear to understand the 25-year decline in crime that we've seen. Like, year after year, a substantial number of Americans will say when asked that crime is, is higher than it was last year. But one of the dynamics involved is that white liberals of the kind who are moving into urban centers and gentrifying them over the last decade don't necessarily want aggressive police tactics on things like marijuana. They have more liberal attitudes on drugs, and they understand in theory the fact that over-policing is bad for communities of color. But when it comes to guns, the kind of national politics of gun control often kick in, and that's kind of how you see Democratic mayors like Rahm Emanuel trying to, like, out-hawk everybody on guns in a way that some local community activists in Chicago are pointing out is not going to be good for police community relations in a city where that's already busted, but that Emanuel can go to as a, this is how we're going to solve our crime problem without having to explicitly defend the police. I agree with all of that, but I just think it's important that, like, if you want to take guns seriously— I mean, the amount of stop and frisk that the Chicago Police Department, for example, has used in the past few years. If you want to, like, seriously take guns seriously, like, you don't necessarily have to do that. That's what I'm saying. Like, you can take your gun problem seriously and still take a more targeted approach that signals to the community, like, we're not really just in mass harassing, like, entire minority communities as as a result. And, like, I think that's important to draw out because, like, often this can be put as, like, a— as an either-or problem where you either – and police officials that I've talked to before have put this as like an either-or problem where it's like either you harass essentially entire neighborhoods or you just let guns go free. And and I think that's just a false dichotomy. So I was interested looking at sort of the the state-by-state geography of clearance rates and it makes me – I don't know exactly what it makes me think. But it doesn't obviously fit the pattern that like – liberal, soft on crime, Herman Dara policies are what's going to get us here. Like like Texas for, you know, like a big state with big cities has a pretty high clearance rate at 72%. You know, D.C. is around 60. Uh, Michigan is the most uh, sort of incredibly low. I think it was around uh, 47 the most recent year in the, in the low 50s uh, a lot of times. And one thing that Thomas Hargrove, who runs a project that he calls the the Murder Accountability Project, where he does a lot of laborious work to assemble data on clearance rates, is that he thinks that a really important aspect of this is that in some states, the state police play a fairly aggressive role in investigating murders, like somebody gets murdered and somebody from the state police office typically is like, let's see if we can help solve this crime. And then in other states, it's much more pushed down to the kind of local level and that a lot of the really most dismal clearance rates are in places like Flint, like small cities that just do not have – it's that they don't have any police – officers, but, like, you cannot build up a, like, elaborated, professionalized crime-solving core at a particularly small scale, and that they just, like, literally don't have the ability to, like, investigate in a really rigorous type of way, and that it is on some level a fairly straightforward question of, like, do you want to say – 
we want to investigate crimes and then like make that somebody's job and, you know, have them do it. So, I mean, I think that it is worth kind of localizing this even further. Like, yes, it is generally true. I like I ran the numbers on this back in 2015, I think. And like there are three different tiers for a size of jurisdiction that the Uniform Crime Report uses. And like clearance rates aren't that much lower in major cities than they are in suburban or rural areas. But particular major cities have particularly abysmal clearance rates. And Baltimore is really the er example of this. Like 20 years ago, the clearance rate in Baltimore was actually higher than the national average. It was like 70 percent. In 2014, the year before the death of Freddie Gray and the protests that helped underline the narrative of the Ferguson effect, which that was in spring of 2015. So that was coming after a year when only 45 percent of homicides were cleared. In 2015, the year of Freddie Gray, it was like 31 percent. It's just really abysmal stuff. And that's worth noting, A, because it indicates that there is something about the specifics of history between a given department and its people, but also because when we talk about the rise in homicide over like 2015, 2016, and then maybe down again in 2017, that's still kind of up in the air, we're talking about something that is driven by a few major cities, including and especially Baltimore. And so the criminologists who have taken this stuff the most seriously and who have kind of put forward the most persuasive possible account that there really is something with anti-police protests and a rise in crime have put together the fact that, like, there are specific cases where an anti-police protest reflects a total breakdown in trust between communities and the police. And without active police work to rebuild that trust, there is going to be a lack of willingness to help solve. And Chicago, right, which is also often a sort of byword in in urban crime debates, has a very low clearance rate. Right. Uh, Much lower than other kind of large And and if you get down to like specific neighborhoods, it's even like, like it is just amazing how bad they are. Like there are entire blocks where like essentially hundreds of murders go completely unsolved. It's just horrible. So like to both your points, it's not just like you can go even hyper local to like mm-hmm. specific neighborhoods and see that the police department or the city or the state is not doing a good job. And like this is where kind of it gets back to how police officers themselves see their job because you know, Matt, your interlocutors in policing are talking about these aggregate numbers that are in fact a lot lower than they were, but what crime still exists is incredibly localized. The joke among sociologists that all maps are either proxies for population density or proxies for percentage of African-Americans in a given place, like it's that, but it's really bad. And so it does raise the question of, okay, yeah, if crime is down on the aggregate level, but that reduction is not being felt equally, What does a police officer at the kind of beat cop level view as his obligation to the specific neighborhood in which violent crime is most likely to happen? Does he see that as a place that is likely to be particularly dangerous for him because there is a lot of gunfire, because there is violence, because distrust of police might be particularly high? Or does he see that as the place where he has a potential to make a difference and to bring crime down to be more closer to on par with the rest of his city. A lot of police officers see it as the former. The pervasive view in policing is that your job is to make it home alive at the end of the day. And 
when that runs into situations in which you might in fact be in danger because you're in a violent neighborhood, that tempers your approach. It keeps you in your car. You know, it makes you wary of going anywhere without backup. It makes it more likely that you're going to be rolling in as a police force rather than as a beat cop. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons that these like super targeted, like focused deterrence and hotspot policing, like these trends are so popular is because criminologists have looked at these maps that show, hey, most of these murders in these cities are being carried out by like in like specific blocks, specific neighborhoods, even by specific individuals in some cases that it's just like a few people really causing a lot of the violence in the city. And that's why these policing strategies are, are becoming like increasingly popular. And for police officers, that does mean changing what they do from day to day. And a lot of them are going to be resistant to that because they think what they've been doing has worked. They think that like really these dragnet approaches to these entire communities have been successful, no matter how much empirical evidence suggests otherwise or suggests that these other strategies might be better. But I think one thing that Matt mentioned is that like the state police departments coming in and helping out these local police departments. That really reminded me of like what some other countries do in terms of like, like if you look at your some European countries and like if you look at Japan, for example, which has some of the lowest murder rates in the world, they have like a more nationalized police force. They have like local branches, but essentially they do have this like top down model where like what would be the equivalent to like a state level police department is coming in and helping out these local branches solve these crimes. And yeah, like I, I keep thinking of a place like Flint, which just might not have the resources for like a fancy forensics lab. They might not have like enough people to even have like good detectives or something like that. And it's like you will need state resources to come in at the end of the day and help out with that. And that that kind of speaks to the need for just like a lot of these police departments would like to do better, but they are constrained by how much they can do. I also do wonder on a trust level. I mean, there was a slightly ridiculous moment early in Trump's presidency where he was like, maybe we're going to send in the feds to Chicago and fix things. And like, who even knows what like you thought that meant, right? But if you have like a large city with a large crime problem and a very low clearance rate and what you know to be like a bad relationship between the police department, African-American residents, to some extent like the mayor's office and an endless political shit show. Like I do wonder if that is potentially an opportunity for a different level of government to like say it has some investigators who it can – lend out and like some people from some other agency can like come in and talk to you a little bit and like try to see what's going on and can we do something and like help in a way that would be mutually helpful to both people who would like to not see people like their neighbors being killed and also police officers who would like to see a safer environment to work in. I don't – you know, like Donald Trump tweeting is not going to (laughs) achieve that. Um, But in Baltimore again – This is a relatively low-income, high-poverty city in what's one of the richest states in the whole country, right? So, like, Maryland has a lot of resources that it could deploy in various ways to, like, try to help out. It's the largest city in the richest state has, frankly, a lot of social problems. And they do get some resources from the state. But it's like, what can they do that is useful? And, like, possibly police investigators could be, although— I mean, also, I don't know that much about state police forces in the United States, but it seems very challenging to get out of a downward spiral situation unless somebody else can come in and, like, help break a cycle. I mean, that does rely on the people who are 
on community members being willing and able to make a distinction between, like, literally good cops and bad cops. And I think that the kind of, you know, I I think that the lesson of people being fairly insensitive to policy interventions indicates that that might not be the case. But that doesn't mean that there isn't anything that can be done. I think kind of we're dealing with at least two different problems and probably a lot of different problems in various configurations, like the problems that a department like Flint has where it really doesn't have the capacity, like human intelligence appears to be a problem across the board. But there also in some jurisdictions are problems where other tools to solve crimes like the proper use of forensic evidence are not being fully utilized because of resource constraints. And like, that seems like a very easy thing for government to help solve, right? Like, it seems pretty easy to have either a Michigan state or a federal, like, centralized crime lab for jurisdictions that can't afford that kind of money and like, actually fund it so that it's turning evidence around on a frequent basis and make it independent enough of police and prosecutors offices that they don't end up pressured to kind of find positive findings in every case, which has been a problem with a lot of crime labs. There are definitely things you could do. Like, heck, police departments are able to get surplus stuff from the Department of Defense under, you know, like under burn grants. Like, it's not that implausible that you could do something where, like, they could get, like, discarded CDC equipment or something. So that, that, that NIH, military supply like stuff, I, I think, spell that out, because I, I think a lot of people yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. about so, it. But I think that actually speaks to the core choice that we've made here, right? Yeah. The question is, like, okay, so the federal government, we want to do something to help police departments be more effective. So, like, what is this big thing that we do. Right. So, I mean, there are a few programs that the federal government uses to kind of like directly give money to police departments. In addition to that, it essentially gives them like access to the cheap procurement of surplus stuff from the Department of Defense. And by a similar track, the Department of Homeland Security like offers special access to like particular things that might be needed. And what that means in practice is you know, kind of tanks and coffee makers, right? right? Like there's a lot of money being spent on things that might not be strictly necessary, but that people are going to take advantage of. And there's a lot of access to the stuff that everyone was really shocked were on the streets in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, right? right. Like the, the idea of having police tanks seemed to people who kind of hadn't been following it to be a violation of posse comitatus, but a lot of police departments have a tank somewhere. But so the, I mean, the underlying presumption of a program like that is that, like, a major concern we have is that police departments are going to lose out in, like, violent conflict with other armed groups. Like, that's what military equipment is for, right? right? And that is different from saying a major concern we have about police departments is that they are going to show up at a crime scene with a dead body and they're not going to have the capacity to find out who killed that person. Yeah. Like, a tank a tank is obviously not going to help you solve a crime. I mean, there's, like, special police forces in the Department of Defense precisely because soldiers don't solve crime. Right. Like that's that's not what you do. And this kind of speaks back to like Trump's stupid send in the feds tweet. Like when I reported out a story on that, the thing that a lot of criminal justice experts said to me was not that like sending in the feds is necessarily a bad idea. But historically, the way we send in the feds has been like 
dropping them in, getting them to like investigate a bunch of drug crimes that don't really speak to like the murder issue, and then they they just like leave after a, a couple weeks. So like this police department does get like more resources for a little bit, but then they don't, and it's like a question of like were these resources even going to the right thing to begin with, and that that like produces all sorts of problems. For decades, we've had this like really militarized view of how policing works in the U.S. I mean, there are some like really awful stories of like police departments literally bombing and like gunning down apartments to the point that like the walls would collapse around them. And that seeks to like this mentality that like the the U.S. was actually locked in some sort of like real war with with gangs and whatnot. And I, I mean, there are like serious gang problems. So based on what we've seen, that's like not really how you address these gang and violence problems. If you want to take it seriously, it goes back to like this allocation of smart resources, meaning like detectives and focus deterrence, hotspot policing, that kind of thing, but also just like making sure that at the same time you're not doing things like blowing down an apartment where the person is innocent and and therefore going to start thinking, wait, why should I trust the police if they're just like attacking me for no reason? Yeah, I mean, the development of policing, at least, you know, in the 20th century in America, it's helpful if you see it as a response to the rise of organized crime during and then after prohibition, because a lot of these tactics and, you know, the kind of broader approach that police departments take is that somewhere there is an organized criminal endeavor that is responsible for most of the violent crime and that is also making its money through illicit ends and that both of those things are social problems that mutually reinforce each other. And so, you know, it's important to kind of dismantle this criminal organization. That's not the way the game works anymore. Like, while we're talking about street violence in many of the same communities that had really really bad gang warfare in the early 90s, the like nationally centralized gang does not really exist in the same way. There is a lot less in Los Angeles. The gangs, as people understand them, have basically collapsed. A lot of these cities, like especially in places like LA and Chicago, what you're dealing with are crimes being perpetuated by cliques. They're smaller. They're less professionally organized. They're not engaged in the act of large-scale drug smuggling. They're not trying to launder their money through prominent politicians a la The Wire. They're just, they're a lot more contingent as groups. There's a similar thing with MS-13, despite the kind of attempts to attack it as this kind of big monster organized thing. It's both less than that and less rational than that, right? Like to take that as a serious crime problem means understanding that violent crime is not always or even usually being committed in the service of like criminal income. But it also means, you know, taking an approach that acknowledges that the people you're fighting are never going to have tanks to go against you, right? Like, they're never going to be as well-armed because they're not actually the foot soldiers in a larger organization. And in the federal level, right, I mean, we have a lot of federal law enforcement resources of various kinds. But when you look at what they are, right, there's a very big immigration enforcement agency too, really. There's a substantial drug enforcement agency. There's a lot of little agencies. And there's the FBI, which has a broad portfolio. But the the prestigious thing to do if you're an FBI official is to work counterintelligence, national security type cases, right? So even though it sounds silly to say that like the American political culture doesn't take murderers seriously as a problem, it actually sort of doesn't, right? Like there's a lot of resources being pulled into catching 
people who have immigrated to the country illegally and a lot of resources put into catching people who are involved in smuggling or selling drugs. And if you ask about those agencies and what they are doing, like they will talk to you about violent murderers because they do catch people who are involved in violent crime, among other things. But like none of the agencies actual mission is to like look at where a lot of murdering is happening and try to identify who is doing it and then catch the people who are doing it irrespective of like their immigration status or involvement in heroin trafficking mm-hmm. right like cuz like some heroin traffickers kill people but like it's definitely not the case that all murderers are part of international heroin smuggling rings right and i think one thing i wanted to mention is that it's not even just policing agencies necessarily. So like in Chicago, one successful program has been called like the Interrupters. And like these have seen like more and more evidence behind them. And essentially what these these are like members of the community who might have been involved in crime in the past coming in and like interrupting like crimes before they happen. So um, like if, if you know somebody's hot-headed freaking out because they were dissed or something uh, in, in a recent argument and they might be likely to like pull out a gun and try to kill the person who dissed them. These interrupters come in, like talk down the person, work through it. And there's like good evidence that this has actually worked. But what you've seen is like Chicago and Illinois have very inconsistently funded this model that by like all accounts, everyone says like it it might not be the answer to crime in these cities, but it's like an evidence-based one. And that just speaks to how like we're not taking this problem seriously. There's also some things about how like police departments don't like the idea of these interrupters taking this public health approach that's outside of like traditional policing, which speaks to Dara's point that like sometimes police departments are conflicted with what might be the best idea here but it speaks to like how as a society as a whole that this program can't get consistent funding like we're really not taking murders as seriously as we should all right and with that you should take murders more seriously and also take your podcast listening very seriously by always recommending us to your friends rate us up you know on itunes and elsewhere and of course we've been nominated for this year's people's choice podcast awards so you can vote for our show for free by going to podcastawards.com or tapping the link in the show notes voting ends tuesday july 31st so do not wait go to podcastawards.com right now to cast your vote for the weeds and with that thanks herman for joining us thanks to our engineer griffin tanner our producer bridget armstrong thank all of you for listening the weeds will be back on tuesday Thank you.